Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought. From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. In today's podcast, we'll hear from Fiona Marshall, who is a professor of archaeology at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Marshall's research focuses in part on the early beginnings of food production, especially in Africa. Over the last several decades, what we know about why and how people first began domesticating plants and animals has changed somewhat drastically. So let's go back a few thousand years and hear about how farming as we now know it actually began. It turns out it used to be thought there was one pathway to food production worldwide, and it was best known in the Near East. And uh, the arguments were that increasing populations, climate changes, also impacts of people on the environment were really important factors uh, that caused the beginning of food production, that it happened rapidly, that the advantages were um, that more people could be fed, and that it was an advantage to live in cities and be more specialized. As it turns out, almost everything about our older understandings of the beginnings of farming have changed over the last 20 years. So we now understand that there were many very different pathways to food production in uh, the Americas, in Central America, in East and North America, and in Africa. Many more people continued to be hunters and gatherers, and plants and animals were used in a very diverse way together with wild resources. So in Africa, it turns out that uh, plants were not domesticated before animals, which was another tenet of Near Eastern agriculture, and instead that animals were domesticated first, and then because of drying and the creation of the modern Sahara in a place where there was a savanna until about 6,000 years ago, think of it, that's half of a continent, it's more than 10 million square miles, became a desert, and people responded by moving and using uh, their livestock to do that. The African case is the clearest one where you see early agriculture in the form of pastoralism developing, mm-hmm. actually probably in response to unpredictable conditions, very much like we experienced this year. Drought and then rain, but coming when you don't expect it. For those reasons, people followed animals and domesticated animals. What we see in Africa then is early use of cattle becoming combined with sheep and goats, which were introduced from the Near East and first domesticated in that region. And donkeys being domesticated from African wild asses, which roamed the arid savannas. They are arid adapted animals, so they're the best desert animals after camels. And for this reason, people and African wild ass were forced together as the Sahara dried, and they were domesticated to form donkeys. Just a quick aside, Marshall has a specific research area focusing on the domestication of the donkey, which she's working on in partnership with the St. Louis Zoo. In our next podcast, we'll learn more about that specific project and about the modern-day importance of small-scale transport animals to farming worldwide. But for now, let's stay in the ancient past and hear about how the domestication of animals like donkeys affected early African pastoralists. This then completely transformed how people live because whole families could move in response to areas where there was rain, even if it was distant. And it wasn't just, say, the young men that were sent off with the cattle or sheep and goats. 
Not only that, but women's work was completely changed. In most societies in rural and poor areas, even today, a very energy expensive task that women perform is collecting water. And it turns out if you have a donkey, you actually might even change uh, population growth, change the birth spacing of your children. You might be able to have more children because you have more fat on your body, which, which affects ovulation. So having a donkey actually really profoundly changed societies, changed mobility, it changed women's work. It allowed the development of long-distance trade routes more specialized forms of trade and the development of trade between the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians. I think this is important as we go forward looking to the future because my experience in Africa with the ancient past and also doing anthropology in recent times leads me to believe that one of the strongest uh, responses to climate change is mobility. And we now have technologies that allow us with mobile phones and with uh, solar-powered computers and so on to actually develop different kinds of mobile societies. We can also look at the U.S. and the way that people are moving houses more frequently, moving cities, moving states. I think that this is an essential strategy for us to think about, and it's one that uh, domestication of animals in particular allowed as, as long ago as six to 8,000 years in many parts of the world. So we know that in Africa, domestication of animals preceded domestication of plants. But let's hear a few more specifics. What was the timeline? What did these early farmers raise or grow, and where were they located? New research in the Near East, particularly on radiocarbon dating and calibrating the radiocarbon dates uh, so that they're more accurate, has shown us that the earliest domestic plants and the earliest domestic animals, that would be goats and sheep, uh, and the earliest plants would be barley and wheat in the Near East. Now we know, in fact, they were domesticated at right around the same time. In Africa, there is no question that aside of the Nile Delta, which is a little bit complicated because of very close relationships uh, with the Levant and surrounding areas of Asia, uh, but African crops themselves were not domesticated until at the earliest right now, 4,000 years ago which leaves us with at least a 4,000-year lag from the earliest time of domestication of cattle and donkeys in Africa. So pastoralists moved all the way south, thousands of miles, to the equator in East Africa, in Kenya and surrounding areas, and to the west in Mali, also thousands and thousands of miles. And in West Africa, they seem to have settled by some of the major rivers, and we're now seeing a pattern where a vast area of the Sahel, the southern border of the Sahara, seems to have early domestic pearl millet at about the same time, right around 4,000 years ago. The black-eyed pea was also one of the first domesticates, and nobody really had expected that peas were an early domesticate. They used to think it was only grains. So that's a new finding. And a couple of mysteries remain. Sorghum is one of the world's economically most important crops, and you see it here all over the Midwest. But it turns out to be a very late domesticate. This might in part be because of its biology. It, it doesn't self-pollinate. It crosses, outcrosses. So sometimes even driving east of East St. Louis, you'll see sorghum fields with a big head and a little head, 
in spite of all our modern technology, this sorghum is unruly and uh, difficult to keep to a specific morphological form. Uh, the other reasons we think that plants were domesticated late in Africa is simply it wasn't advantageous for people who needed to be mobile. Let's look at early farming from yet another angle. We've heard that changing climate conditions had a major effect on how and why people began domesticating plants and animals. I also asked Marshall whether any of her research dealt with the social or cultural aspects of the shift to farming. Yeah, I worked with hunter-gatherers, uh, the Okiek hunter-gatherers in Kenya, Tom Pilgrim, and I did ethnoarchaeological work. And we were really interested in studying the hunting and gathering with a view to better understanding transitions to food production, which may have preferentially occurred among hunter-gatherer groups that had notions of ownership, what we call complex hunter-gatherers. Uh, because if you do a lot of work, it seems not worth it if then everybody else can ask you to kill your goat or your cow and work among immediate return hunter-gatherers, such as the Kung in southern Africa has shown in recent times when individuals try to become farmers, puts them in direct conflict with the values of their society because everyone's supposed to share. And so people try and fail repeatedly because whether you're trying to plant or whether you're tending to an animal, it becomes very difficult when everybody else just takes what you've produced. So it's likely that the form of society was critical to whether food production developed or not. And that initially, it was in order to secure access for more predictable access. You had your animals controlled. Uh, you know what status the plant's in, rather than for more food. You actually don't get more food from early domestication, but you do get potentially more predictable food. And so those are the advantages. And in our work with the Okiak, we were studying then uh, delayed return hunter-gatherers and their hunting and their food. So we can see the roots of domestication in, in hunter-gatherer societies um, all around the world. To wrap up, let's step back and look at the big picture. With her expertise in the very beginnings of agriculture, what does Professor Marshall think about where we are in terms of food production today? There are many aspects of agriculture that make you wonder if it was all worthwhile. We have to be agricultural now because it's the only way we can support this many people and we have to become ever more intensive agricultural farmers. But the idea that it's better to live in cities and it's better to have inequality and it's better to have specialization are all things that hunter-gatherer ethnoarchaeology of the kinds I was describing really call into question. It seems much more likely that people became agricultural because we were forced to rather than that was a desirable outcome. And once you get on that path, if you see population growth, which you do tend to see with agriculture, mainly because you can grow weaning foods and basically space your children closer uh, and in the end, you're stuck in a feedback loop of more and more food for more and more people. So my old professor at Berkeley who studied human evolution always thought that agriculture was the beginning of the end. <laughs> so there, there is a whole other aspect and way of looking at it. Many thanks to Fiona Marshall for contributing to Hold That Thought. We'll hear from her again later this week. You can also find more podcasts at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.
www.wustl.edu.